Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we have the second of our two episodes devoted to topics related to dating and finding the long-term partner that you've been looking for. To help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad, which made the first conversation very interesting. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I thoroughly like this topic, partly because it really cuts through a whole bunch of hocus-pocus, yakety-yak in psychology and self-help to some very real, down-in-the-trenches kind of priorities for people. So I'm really glad we're doing this. Totally right on. Today, we're going to be focusing on some of the things that we, frankly, didn't have time to cover in the previous episode. So we're going to talk about what to look for in a partner, green flags and red flags, managing some of the early moments of conflict that can appear inside of a relationship, dealing with rejection, and maybe even some kind of heartfelt case studies. We receive a lot of emails from people about different topics related to this. And I kind of want to explore one or two of those that have come up pretty frequently. So before we get into today's episode, a couple of quick reminders. First, you can follow us everywhere on social media. I've included links to that down below in the description of today's podcast if you check that out. Second, if you'd rather be watching this episode right now, you can do so on my YouTube channel. I've included a link to that as well. And then finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash being well podcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. We are both cis, white, heterosexual men. And that inevitably impacts the way that we talk about and think about relationships. We've done our best during this conversation to make suggestions that could be applicable to a broad range of persons and bodies and situations and approaches to different kinds of relationships. But the advice that we give is kind of inextricably linked to who we are. And so I think it's appropriate to give that disclaimer before we get started here. Okay, so I'd like to spend some time today talking about what to look for in a partner. Green flags, maybe some accompanying red flags, particularly beyond the kind of typical adjectives like somebody who's intelligent and nice and funny and all of that good stuff. So you've seen a lot of relationships walk into your office, Dad. And most of those relationships, because they're wandering into therapy together, had some issue that they were trying to deal with, some conflict that had emerged inside of the relationship. And I think that this puts you in a position to be kind of uniquely suited to talk about the uh, character traits or personality issues or whatever that tend to lead to issues in relationships. I'd say two right off the top are deal breakers when they're not present. So it's on the foundation of these two that we'll talk about some other qualities as well. First, the other person needs to be basically emotionally sane. <laughs> They're not a nut. Oh, that's, that's a great starting point. <laughs> yeah, but right, I'm, call, I'm calling it. And, yeah, no, for sure. You know, they're not completely carried away by addictions. They're not overwhelmed by their temper. They're not just neurotically gripped by childhood trauma that's completely unresolved. They're just a, there's a basic sanity 
in that other person, yeah. which for me includes a good heart. Part of basic sanity is having a good heart. There's a fundamental commitment in them and interest in them toward building up rather than tearing down, to operating in good faith in their relationships, and being uh, transparent and genuine and sincere in how they are. I'm putting all that together in terms of basic sanity. The other major headline is, are they willing to repair? Mm. Are they willing to enter into conversation with you to work through little tiny misunderstandings and potentially big issues? If you're trying to make a relationship that's substantial, maybe involving buying a house together or having children together, if you're trying to make a relationship that's substantial with someone who lacks these qualities of basic sanity that I've listed, and also and or is someone who just will not repair with you, those are deal breakers. Mm. Those for me are complete red flags. Sorry, no matter how cute or sexy or rich or whatever that other person is, they'll drive you crazy if fundamentally they're not basically sane with a good heart and are willing to repair. Yeah, and I want to pull out what you just said there, that good heart part. Yeah. For me, number one with a bullet is that they're a basically nice person. Yeah. Prickly people can be really attractive. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of tropes in the culture about the bad boy and the mean girl and whatever. And there's often this pull of wanting to repair that which has been broken. You know, I am the one who will be able to fix this person. Most of the time, over the long haul, those people are going to lead to more challenging romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. That's if right. the person presents in this way, but underneath that presentation, they're a fundamentally warm, kind-hearted person, okay, sure, that's, that's one thing. That's kind of a certain category. But if they're just really prickly and they've got an issue with their temper and they're kind of mean to you and they're not particularly nice to your friends— mm. It's a huge deal breaker. Like it's a total deal breaker, at least for me personally. Um, so I think that that element of a warm heartedness is probably the fundamental thing that at least I look for in a partner. Yeah, what well, thing that happens around that, talking about erotic attraction, is that warm heartedness, kindness in another person can be a bit of a buzzkill potentially in terms of what turns us on, you know? Yeah. Totally. So I think it's important for people to kind of be aware of that possibility, if that's working for them, and to realize that you can find all sorts of erotic connection with other people that are not narrowly about them being a kind of a sexy outlaw yeah. in their fundamental psychology. Well, I mean, if you think of the the tropes that we create in the culture, you can just look at movies uh, for yeah. a perfect example of this, at least if you live in America. Like James Bond, you gave a, a James Bond example in the first episode we did on this last week yeah. of, you know, ejecting somebody out of the passenger seat of the car. Classic James Bond move, you know, <laughs> not like exactly the most warm-hearted, kind-hearted person. No. And yet this is like the archetype of masculinity, or at least was for, yeah. for literal decades. You know, I, I don't think that anyone would describe James as like a particularly kind-hearted person. No, and if you read the novels, he comes off as enormously sexist and racist. Womanizer, the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just like not a good archetype. 
But that's the archetype that we've created as the appealing person, particularly the appealing man. And there are equivalently problematic archetypes on the female side. And so I think that that absolutely connects to this kind of erotic attraction aspect that you're talking about here, Dad. There can be an appeal to somebody who feels aloof, who feels sort of separate and mysterious and different from everyone else. Or there's the whiff of danger around them. And I mean, we can get into a whole thing about how people's developmental history can heavily influence this if they were raised inside of environments where there was a lot of anger, aggression, chaos, violence, whatever. These things can get kind of counter-programmed inside of the brain to become elements of attraction as opposed to elements of repulsion. That's a whole other conversation, but it totally does play into this. Yeah. Sometimes there's this dynamic that emerges. It's described classically as pursuer distancer. Yeah. And yeah, if you're an invasive pursuer that always is trying to get into the deep core of other people immediately on first acquaintance, well, yeah, maybe there's a reason why they're backing away from you. All right. But on the other hand, you know, if you're reasonably receptive to other people and reasonably skillful about how you are with them, and meanwhile, you keep getting this feeling that this other person is distancing from you or trying to be elusive or evasive, maybe manipulatively, to try to get you to keep on chasing after them, huh, maybe that person is not going to be a good partner for you. Totally great way to put it. To move on here to another thing to maybe look for that I think is really, really central in any long-term relationship is this idea of the growth curve. Yeah. Does the other person have a growth mindset? Do you see a kind of general upward trajectory associated with them, their life, where they're going? Are they changing or have they been stagnant for the last 20 years? Are they flexible? Are they open to new ideas? I said something in an episode a little while ago about this idea that you're getting into a relationship not with a person, but with a process Mm. when you enter a relationship. Because hopefully none of us are stagnant, we're changing, we're moving, we're growing over time. And the big question is not necessarily, do you love the person? It's, do you love the process? Because the person is going to change. And if you get narrowly attached to the exact version of them, the way they are now, that's generally not a great equation for a long-term sustainable relationship. Yeah. Recognizing that the other person is a kind of developmentally unfolding moving target, as it were, and being a little humble about that and open is a good thing, definitely true. I think there's another aspect as well regarding whether the other person has a growth curve in that, are they interested in learning in this life? Are they alive in their engagement with life? That doesn't mean that they have to be a big time intellectual. Maybe they're just really alive in their engagement with gardening. And for them, there's this ongoing unfolding. There's something new in a long-term relationship particularly now that we're not all dead by the time we're 40, like back in the Stone Age. If you want to keep it alive over the long haul, decade after decade, your mom and I are approaching our, drum roll, 40th wedding anniversary. Um, (laughs) How do you stay interested? And it just kind of helps for that other person, certainly to be someone who is growing, because that's a good way to maintain, maintain interest. And of course, there's a you know, nod here as well to making sure you have a growth curve yourself. Yeah, totally. And I do want to take a second to say something that's going to sound a little contradictory to what I just said. But I think that there's also a potential trap here for people Mm -hmm. where they quote unquote, see the potential 
of the other person. Oh, yeah. A lot of the time, the potential that you see in the other person is not the person that that person actually wants to be. And you got to be very, very careful about attaching your vision for their growth curve to them and to their desires and to what they actually want from this life. And I think that where you see that is the general fix-it mentality that people often enter into, this idea that I can fix the other person. Oh, man, I love it. There's this kind of jokey but very deeply true saying that many times people come together in relationship, let's say A and B, and A thinks that B will stay the same, and B thinks that they can fix A, and both are usually disappointed. Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. It's a great way to frame it. So, okay, is there something else that you think that people should really be looking for here? Definitely. So another thing that I think is important to be aware of when you're picking another person, especially for the long haul, is that kind of summarized in the saying from Western novels that I used to consume a lot of, is this a kind of person that you can ride the river with? Is this someone that you would trust to handle things well if you were stuck in the hospital? for a week or a month, and they had to make some major decisions on your behalf. Is this someone who can hold their weight in making a living in terms of you know money? Is this someone who is not gonna freak out when the sink doesn't work and you need to call a plumber who can manage that process? Is this someone who can fill out paperwork? Is this someone who's reasonably competent in modern technology? You know, when they look at the, you know, the operating system for their computer, do they go, ah, you know, I can't handle it. Is there basic functionality in that other person, especially when the chips are down? And I'll, I'll give you a little uh, metaphor that uh, kind of sums this up for me. When I was first learning how to rock climb, the guy I was going out with, this was when I was maybe 21 or 22, said, Rick, I want you to learn these techniques for being able to move up and down the rope on your own. And I asked him, why do I need to learn that? And he said, because I need you to know how to do it if something happens to me. Oh, he wanted me, understandably, to have the kind of functionality that could help take care of him if the chips were down. And so that's kind of a way of thinking about what kind of capabilities do you want over there in that other person? That, that, now, that doesn't mean being overly picky Maybe their capabilities are a good complement to you, and that's a good partnership. Maybe they're not as educated, perhaps, as you are. On the other hand, they have a tremendous amount of good, old-fashioned common sense and a willingness to learn new things. That's great. The bottom line, does this feel like someone that you can ride the river with? Yeah, I think that what you're pointing to here is the kind of unsexy reality that long-term relationships are often partnerships just as much as they're romantic interactions between you and the other person. And I think that that gets more and more true the longer a relationship goes on for, generally speaking. That's not to say that you lose the romance. It's just that the paraphernalia attached to your relationship increases as time goes on. You have a kid together. You're figuring out your taxes together. You're buying a house together. I mean... Hopefully, at some point in my life, I'll be able to do that because the market's completely insane. But anyways, the point is, theoretically, if you're if you're not a millennial, you're buying a house together or whatever. Um, anyway, that's a conversation for a different podcast. But yeah, so you have these practical engagements that you have with another person, right? Are they going to be able to 
pull their weight yeah. inside of those practical engagements. And again, it's not like the most fun thing to talk about, but I think that it's an enormously critical thing to figure out because it's the kind of grit that gets into the motor of your relationship when you have all of these tiny interactions where you're just sort of frustrated by the other person's ability to really show up. Hey, one kind of functionality I kind of want to name here too is, mm -hmm. can they navigate reasonably well relationships with your friends and your family? Yeah. Just the basics. Can they be polite? Can they be interested? Just basic kind of stuff. You know, are they someone that your friends and family will like? and will enjoy being around uh, and will not feel put off by. So that's something else to think about in terms of functionality. What just piggybacks on this whole thing that we're talking about right now is what I like to call the friend factor. Great. A lot of the time, people are kind of better suited by identifying someone they'd like to be friends with first and then going from there into the actual relationship. In general, I think that it is a wonderful way to think about being with somebody over an extended stretch of time because most of the time that you spend with your partner is not going to be romantic. You're going to be watching a moving movie together. You're going to be sitting in an airport together. You're going to be taking a kid to school together. You're going to be shopping for groceries together. It's very practical stuff. You're just killing a lot of time yeah. with this other person a lot of the time. Is that time going to be pleasant for you or not? Yeah. That is the fundamental question, I think, for most relationships. Do you enjoy hanging out together? And I have been regularly struck by the number of relationships I've been around where it just didn't feel like the two people actually enjoyed hanging out together when yeah. they weren't doing something special and relationshipy. Yeah, I think you're describing situations in which I've seen where there's an ironic dimension that mm -hmm. is satisfying. Yeah. There's also love. Mm -hmm but there's not much liking. Mm, mm -hmm. And even as well, sometimes not much shared functionality. They're, they're yeah. not a very good team. And the erotic dimension and the love aspect can carry people a long way, but I don't think just that alone is enough for most long-term relationships. Yeah, no, I think that's super well said. Another thing to look for or not look for, depending on your proclivity here, is that for a lot of people, a major question is whether or not they want to have kids. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the first question that you ask somebody when you go on a date with them. Mm -hmm. But if you're really looking at a long-term relationship and you're thinking to yourself, I want to have kids, this is a deal breaker for me, mm -hmm. that's got to come out early on. Because yeah. if the other person's like, yeah, you know, not really looking for kids... That can just kind of be it a lot of the time. And then to build on that, what kind of a father or mother mm -hmm. would this other person be? And yeah, are there maybe issues there? Or on the other hand, you think to yourself, wow, this person would be a really, you know, an excellent parent. I want to maybe add one more thing that's kind of knocking at my mental door, which is what does it feel like to be you when you're around them? Mm, I love this. That's great, Dad. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, this is one of the most fundamental indicators. Just bottom line it, bottom line it. When you're around them, do you start feeling smaller? Do you, do you have this subtle feeling that you always have to be on your toes to make sure you don't say the wrong thing? You know, you're walking on eggshells. Or do you feel like when you're around them, maybe that you always have to keep proving yourself or impressing them or being as good as they are? 
Ugh. On the other hand, when you're around them, do you feel like the best part of you just kind of naturally mm. comes forward? Mm -hmm. Do you feel encouraged? Do you feel like they're leaning towards you in an affirming and warm sort of way? Or are they always leaning away? And it feels like you continually have to reattract their attention and woo them back into interest with you. Ugh, not so good. And the bottom line is, just it's good to people, to be around people around whom you walk away from the interaction, feeling a little lighter, a little bigger, a little more loved than when you started it. Love it. No, I think that that's a, a fantastic thing to highlight. And I particularly want to point to because I can't help myself. I have to bring up IFS at some point during these conversations. It's like my Pavlov's bell at this point. But uh, that idea of the parts of yourself huh. that come to the forefront yeah. when you're in relationship That's with great. another person is just such a good way to think about it. That's really more differentiated even than what I was saying. You want to give an yeah. example maybe? Yeah, so uh, to you, so internal family systems is the model that I'm drawing from here. I had a yeah. conversation with Richard Schwartz, who's the founder, creator of IFS therapy. If you want to check that out, that's in our archives. The basic premise of the idea is that we are all constructed of many different parts, different sub-personalities, ages that are trapped inside of ourselves. however you want to think about it. And this isn't like a psychotic thing. It's a perfectly normal thing. And you can think for yourself of how you might have a more managerial part, a part of you that kind of gets things done. Then you might have a more youthful, playful part that comes to the front sometimes. And then maybe you have a more protective part where when people are pushing on you in different ways, this part comes up and is kind of strong and defensive in one way or another. So we all have these different parts. And our interactions with different people are going to bring some of these parts more to the forefront than others. We can think about this in terms of our behavior. Does being around this other person give you this underlying feeling of anxiety that maybe you don't like? Does it put you into that defensive posture I was talking about a second earlier? Maybe they're really activating some uh, unconscious, uncomfortable material. This might relate to what IFS calls exiled parts that you just really don't want to interact with for whatever mm. reason. And these are all signs that that person long-term may or may not be a great fit for you because there are these parts that are coming to your defense that are a suggestion to you that there's something that there's doing that's bothering your underlying psychology. That's excellent. That's really yeah. great. Well, thank you. Flip it around the other way. Yeah. Or to kind of underline in a way what you're saying, does it feel okay for you with them to reveal, to yeah. bring forward certain key aspects of yourself. Those more vulnerable parts. Totally. Absolutely. And if you bring these parts of yourself forward, does the other person run screaming out the door? Mm. Well, uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a deal breaker. <laughs> I don't mean yeah. dumping these parts of yourself on this other person like this maybe childlike part that's incredibly insecure and hungry mm. for love and could, you know, be a little overwhelming for another person, especially over early on. But mm -hmm. for example, if there's a part of you that is really very spiritual mm. or a part of you that's very, very rational, and of course a person could be both rational and spiritual, it is actually possible, or maybe there, this is a part of you that just cares enormously about other people and trying to help them and, and engage social justice practices, mm. whatever it might be. Is there a part of you that's very artistic, that loves music 
or is very interested in cutting edge culture. It doesn't mm. mean that the other person has to necessarily go with you to the opera, but if they are sort of repelled by that idea and think it's silly and stupid and are, you know, hating on you for it, well, huh, that's a clue. This probably is not someone for a long-term relationship. I think you're totally right. I want to use this as an example of a kind of thing. Again, using my own relationship because that's the basis of my greatest familiarity. Elizabeth has more, that's my partner, has more of a predilection towards spirituality than I do. Mm -hmm. And I have a little bit more of a predilection, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, toward hardcore rationality. And we have definitely butted heads over these topics at various moments in our relationship. But we've always been able to do it in a way that was profoundly respectful toward mm. the other person's viewpoint. If in general, you're willing to have a live and let live attitude about some of these fundamental differences, if you're open to the, other, to the way that the other person does things, you can really manage pretty significant differences even around like huge big picture topics like spirituality and religion yep. in very effective ways inside of a partnership if you're dedicated to it and if you really like the other person. Good point. Hey, before going further, I, I kind of want to make, I think, a key point, which is there are many different kinds of great long-term relationships. Some of them look like he lives in New York and she lives in LA and they get together one weekend a month and they talk at least once or twice a week. And maybe that for them is a really good long-term relationship. Yeah, it just works for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are other kinds also where someone says, you know, I'm interested in a pretty deep relationship, including possibly erotically, with several people kind of sort of at the same time. Now, maybe that's not the cup of tea for a number of other people. Okay. But I've known people who have kind of lived in that world in which there's an ongoing slow motion churn of new people coming into their orbit, uh, other people leaving their orbit. They're in process about it, and they're doing it ethically. Complete disclosure with a lot of compassion for, you know, the impact potentially on the people that they're in this different kinds of relationships with. So maybe that's a model for you. Or maybe there's a model, particularly I think often for people who are older and more you know, experienced in life, you know, they're coming into a relationship in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, or, or later, where they're fairly settled in their ways. Person A has their home, person B has their home, and they don't really want to merge households because there's a lot of hassle with that. And maybe they each have adult children and their complications with extended families. They don't really want to super duper merge it. On the other hand, boy, do they enjoy each other's company. Boy, is it fun for them to travel together. And they're not interested in getting married. They're not interested in merging their money. But really, 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 they have a very strong relationship as that kind of couple. So I just kind of want to acknowledge yeah. different forms, different cultures get involved, different religions get involved. You know, there are many different ways to do it. No, I, I think that that's a great point, really central to what we're talking about here. And we definitely do not want to be dogmatic about this yeah. narrow, like heteronormative view yeah. of one guy, one girl, they date mm. for 18 months and then they get married. Like yeah. that's very much not our personal perspectives on it. And hopefully what we're talking about here today is applicable in a variety of different contexts, even yeah. though we've kind of taken that baseline 
as sort of the example that we're working with here. So a natural part of dating and finding a long-term partner, we talked about this in the previous episode, is separating the wheat from the chaff. Mm -hmm. You're separating people, and other people are maybe separating <laughs> you out at some point as well. Wait, what? <laughs> It's it's the pain of the process, you know. So I we thought all everyone have to learn. was supposed to love me. I mean, you know, Dad, I love you a lot, and uh, I think that you love me a lot. But I don't know if I date you. So you know, oh, it's different strokes man. for different folks. There, yeah. anyways, jokes That's aside, the kind of jokes aside, you know, if you just right up front, right there. <laughs> I, yeah, there's uh, Freud would have some commentary. It's a whole mess. But anyways, anyways, yeah. What we have to do here at some point for almost all of us is yeah. learn how to deal with rejection mm. and related experiences of not feeling tremendously wanted by other people. Yeah, There are probably a lot of people listening. I mean, I've definitely had these in my own life who have had many experiences of things not working out in the past for one reason or another. And they have to both kind of deal with that pain, move forward, and hopefully do all of that without their self-worth really taking a beating. So for starters, I'm just wondering about what kind of how you think about this whole territory. Yeah. And then also what some resources are that maybe support people in getting comfortable with the reality of being rejected. Yeah. Two early points entering into it. One is this basic foundation of any kind of ethics that rights for me are also rights for you. And responsibilities for you are also responsibilities for me. One and even playing field here. And that is just a very important, seemingly abstract, but fundamental kind of moral principle to, to honor, even when it's uncomfortable. Second, the norm is asymmetry. What I mean by that, especially in the earlier stages of moving into a relationship. I love this point. This is a great point. Usually person A likes person B more than person B likes person A. Yep. Along the way. And so if it has to be perfectly equal amounts of valuing and emotional investment, affection, attraction, and so forth, well, that's going to be the death knell of most emerging relationships. So being able to tolerate asymmetry and even shifts of asymmetry are really, really useful. Now, extremes of asymmetry, where one person is just absolutely head over heels over the other person, but the other person, honestly, is pretty indifferent not really attracted, not really very interested, doesn't particularly enjoy hanging out with them. That's too much of an asymmetry, okay? But there was this classic moment early on in my relationship with your mom that is kind of memorialized in our family system. We were both in our early 20s. We've known each other a really long time. And we were starting to date. I was kind of interested in her, but she was really interested in me early on. This switched, by the way, later in some ways, which was funny <laughs> years later before we got married. Anyway, she, Jan, was really, really nervous about revealing how into me she had become mm. because that's emotionally vulnerable. It's yeah. emotionally invested. And often because of excessive reactivity to this asymmetry, she was understandably afraid that if she revealed how much she liked me, I would say, uh, I'd call it quits because you know, she liked me a lot and I wasn't so sure. Okay, so she revealed this in a really touching and sweet way. Your mom has a lot of pluck, actually, in a really good way. And I had enough wisdom in me. I don't know where it came from when I was maybe 24 at the time. 
were younger, I said to her, really, you like me more than I like you, and it's okay. That alone is not a deal breaker. I do like you, and you like me more than I like you, and that's okay, and we're going to build from there, which gave her immense relief and, you know, didn't end a relationship prematurely, which, you know, some years later ended up with wedding bells. Yeah, because you just brought it up there so beautifully and the story of the parents and the whole thing. I've heard that story before. It's a lovely story. I think that a major theme in relationships is dealing with power and dealing with power dynamics Mm. with other people. I was talking with Elizabeth Earnshaw about creating a secure relationship. She's wonderful. She's Liz Listens on Instagram. She's got like a bajillion followers over there. She does great, great work. One of the things that she said that really stood out to me from the conversation was one of the most important things to look for in a partner Mm. is how they handle power, Mm. how they handle being in a powerful position, how they handle being in a not powerful position. Excellent. Because a lot of what tends to end a relationship are long-term imbalances of power. It's very, very challenging for a relationship to survive an extremely large, extremely long-term power imbalance without some real thoughtful finesse from both parties involved. And that's, Mm. you know, extremely uncommon. Classic examples of this are little things like how somebody treats a server at a restaurant, which for me is always like a huge indicator of what kind of a person they are, to be perfectly honest. But there are much more big picture examples of this as well, including how we handle those early power dynamics in terms of one person liking somebody a little bit more than the other person likes them back. Uh, So I want to take some time here now to talk about just like the emotional reality of rejection. Yep. Uh, We can use all the fancy language we want to. We can talk about, oh, you know, they were just looking for something else or, oh, your model of relationship is different from their model of relationship. Oh, they weren't a qualified prospect because they didn't like you enough. Doesn't matter. End of the day, it sucks to be rejected by somebody else. That is an emotionally painful experience. And I'm sure you've had people walk into the office who were feeling that pain. Uh, How did you work with them about it? Oh, yeah. First step, of course, is to be with it. We talk about that. Mindful awareness of what you're feeling with some qualities of acceptance and kindness for yourself, compassion, and maybe some investigation of what could be younger or more tender underneath it all that's in the mix, like being left out of friend groups when you were maybe in junior high school. So, Step one. Step two, I guess I'm just like this. What can you learn? Mm. (laughs) You know, it's sort of annoying, but is there anything to learn here? (laughs) This is your siren song, Dad. What growth can I glean from this moment? That's kind of the classic (laughs) Rakansa. That's right. And for me, it's it's hardcore self-reliance. It is as old school, I don't know, my Midwestern ranch, you know, dad roots kind of thing. Or my mom navigating growing up with a single mother, you know, in poverty. You know, what can you learn? Okay, it happened, life kicked you in the teeth, something occurred, what can you learn? And sometimes what we learn is that there's nothing to learn. Really, there's nothing to learn here. Actually, this other person maybe did you a favor. You don't really want to be with them anyway. Nothing to learn here. You were perfectly fine. Well, maybe on the other hand, there's something to learn like, huh, Am I misrepresenting myself on my match profile and just attracting the wrong kind of people who are never going to be into me? Because people who are never going to be into me are the wrong kind of people, <laughs> you know, if you think about it. 
maybe I could learn something about the early stages of interacting with people that they said something that could have been a clue to me and will be a clue for me going forward that, aha, this is not going to go well with this kind of person. We're just too different or there's something here that's going to be a gears grinding for the rest of our time together. Okay, so now I'm going to pay more attention to that. That might be something I could learn. Or when I rewind it and I replay the movie, I can realize that there were these funny little moments, turning points in in interactions, which then form relationships, where I just dropped the ball. They tossed me the ball. Maybe I didn't quite realize it, Maybe they were a little euphemistic or diffident about it, but they tossed me a ball and ah, I just didn't respond well to it. Well, I could learn that maybe going forward. Or maybe there was some kind of awkward first fight, the very first fight in our relationship. And there too, I lost my cool. I blew them off. I wasn't a good listener. I was really kind of unreasonable. All right, I could learn something there too. So whatever it might be, is there something to learn? And what I like about that orientation, and you're right, it's very on-brand for me, is because it seems at first like it would make you feel worse to face up to whatever there is to learn here, you know, whatever correction is to put in for the future. But what happens really quickly is that when you come into it with a growth mindset, and then you bring to bear a growth toolkit, so you actually don't just recognize growing as possible, but you can be an engine of that actual, real, lasting change for the better that is growth, it makes you feel good. Okay, I'm harvesting all the value here, head up, head high, and now I'm going to be better equipped and my odds are going to be even better the next time around. So on brand, just so so on brand. Like you're you're really you're you're becoming a parody of yourself here, Dad. That was an unbelievably on brand riff from you. That also has the benefit of being deeply true. So okay. I completely agree with that. And and I think that part of what you're highlighting here is moving into agency, yeah, which is very on your brand. You know, now I'm becoming a parody of myself here. By talking about and finding a way to drop both IFS and agency into today's episode. <laughs> like, wow, here we go for us. Um, but yeah, no, I because you're really talking about, okay, this thing happened that I can't control. And we haven't talked about this so far, but I think that it's totally true that the reality of relationships is that you release a degree of control. You can't make somebody else like you. Yeah, it's power in a sense you're talking about right there. Yeah, you you are releasing that power to the other person. You're limited in your power. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the most important things to do when you enter the dating arena is to come to grips with the reality that you cannot make other people like you. Yeah. And one of the most unhealthy things that happens inside of relationship dynamics are when one person tries to force another person basically to like them. Yeah. Connected to that, You're talking about kind of one way we can claim agency, Mm -hmm. which is by going, hey, what can I learn from this? What can I take from this? How can I better my life moving forward? Maybe another way to think about that, particularly with the pain associated with rejection, is coming into contact with the things that you authentically do feel worthy about. Mm -hmm. Because rejection is an injury to self-worth, right? It's saying, hey, you're not good enough, quote unquote, for what I want. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, my personal view, loving all of our listeners, is that you are a deeply good person and you really care about this stuff and you are worthy. 
And you have elements of your personality that are unique and are engaged and are interesting mm. and all of that good stuff. You probably spend more time thinking about these topics than the average person does. Yeah. So I am deeply confident that everyone who listens has an element of them that is not only profoundly worthy, but is truly unique and exceptional. Yeah. And we can find a lot of different ways to reconnect with that particularly when we've had an injury to self-worth, like being rejected by another person. Mm. I think about a relationship that I had probably about 10 years ago, ballpark. So I was in my early 20s and it was a relationship where uh, we broke up, I was broken up with, and it just really stuck with me and I mm. couldn't get over it. I was chewing on it over and over mm. again. And I went through a lot of processes that ultimately helped me out. But the biggest thing that helped me out was finding ways to feel worthy. Yeah. Identifying things I was good at, feeling capable in other ways, kind of pumping myself back up after I'd been kind of knocked down from the perch. And sometimes people, when they hear that, they start thinking things like, oh, well, won't that just make me narcissistic or whatever? But as we've talked about many times on the podcast, those kinds of behaviors, narcissistically oriented behaviors, often find their roots in a deep lack of self-worth, not mm. an authentic sense of what you're truly good at. Oh, beautifully said, Forrest. And yeah, thank uh, you. I think highlighting the social dimension of mm. the challenge to self-worth is useful yeah. too. It's implicit in what you said, you know, bringing to mind the feeling of others who do care about you. Maybe they don't care about you in romantic ways, but they still care about you. They like you. They're your friends. They're your family. They're maybe your parents. Yeah, that too can help a person feel better about the rejection that happened. I think it's mm. also helpful to stay with the primary wound. What I mean by that mm. is that mm. if someone that you had hopes for is saying, you know, I'm just not feeling it, I want to break up with you or not go any further, not yeah. go up any higher on the rungs of the dating and mating ladder, mm -hmm. there's a loss there Yeah, that's real. Yeah. That's primary. Let's, let's suppose even that they were reasonably kind about it. They weren't mean or horrible. They weren't criticizing you. They were just saying basically, no, for my own reasons, I don't want to go forward. I want to part ways. Mm. Okay. And you wanted to stay together. There's a loss there. And what I find for people is that if they stay with the direct experience of the loss, and we, of course, can apply this to losing a pet or a loved one, friend, if you just stay with the direct feeling in the traditional metaphor, the first dart, the first arrow, mm, of, mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. inescapable pain of one kind or another, if you just stay with it, usually within minutes, often within a few dozen seconds, it starts to fade and it starts mm. to release. What tends to trap us and lead us to keep circling the drain, as it were, of the experience of loss is that we get sucked into ruminations of different yeah. kinds. We totally. rehash things. We think about woulda, coulda, shoulda, if I'd only this, or what about that? Or we start making up reasons why that other person is a real jerk and we get complicated there. All of that keeps it going. Mm -hmm. But if we have the courage and the internal resourcing, like we've talked about many times and in our book, Resilient, um, if we can just sort of stay with the primary experience, the feeling in the body, the emotional quality of it, and just, ah, oh, 
be able to be with it, then we don't get so trapped by it mm. and we can move on much more readily. Yeah. And applicable, as you were saying, not just for rejection pain, but for most of the pain that comes along yeah. in our lives. Uh, you yeah. said something a second ago that I just want us to spend a little bit of time with, which is this idea of managing early conflict, hmm. where you talked about, okay, one of the reasons that something might go sideways in a relationship is because we had this moment of early conflict yeah. and wow, I just realized with the benefit of hindsight that I really didn't handle it well. A key moment for almost every relationship is the first time you get into an argument. Yeah. And again, you're a longtime therapist. You've seen yep. a lot of arguments in your life. Yep. Do you have any kind of general best practices, ideas, principles here that people can lean on for managing that first moment of conflict? Oh, boy. Remember that this one's really salient because the first mm -hmm. of anything mm -hmm. is memorable. Yeah. Also, be really aware of the salience of anger, mm. the impact of anger, by which I mean really speaking or acting from anger. Yeah. It's one thing for a person to, in a responsible way, in, in a way that in which they're taking responsibility for their own experience, it's one thing for a person to say something like, well, I want to be real here. I like you a lot, and I have hopes for this relationship, and I also understand it's not the end of the world, and still, I'm just letting you know that when you were half an hour late for dinner and didn't acknowledge it even, or act like it mattered that I was waiting here for you for half an hour with no call or text or anything. You know, I felt some anger about that. Yeah. That's a responsible kind of communication. And even the other person can maybe see that flicker of anger in your eyes or feel it in you, but you're not dumping it on them. You're not mm -hmm. yelling at mm -hmm. them or mm -hmm. scolding them in all kinds of critical and caustic ways. Paying attention to anger. So those are two right up the front to realize that this one's going to be consequential. It's important to manage it. You want to try to help it end well and be careful with anger. I think those are great pieces of advice. Another one that I would just throw onto the pile here is that one of the most dangerous things that we can do in relationship with another person is go from what they did to who they are. Ah, good. And you see this all the time. You did X, so that means you are a Y kind of person. Yep. And if I could banish a phrase from everyone right in this moment, it would be that one, that mm -hmm. Y kind of person structure, because it just gets people into so much trouble right. in their interactions with each other. You're just like my father. Yeah, it's it's the classic ad hominem attack, right? Yeah. Like you didn't do the dishes, so you are lazy. Yeah, It's like, well, maybe, or maybe one of 10,000 things happened yeah. differently that led to the dishes not being done. Yeah, And so I think that there are a lot of communication structures that can be useful for people here, things like nonviolent communication mm -hmm. or the, the Gottmans have done a ton of research on the styles of communication that tend to be problematic inside of relationships. We've yeah. got a lot of content related to all of that. But just in general, that movement from what happened to what it says about the other person, mm -hmm. be incredibly careful with. Yeah, that's excellent. So then let's say now you're in it, okay? Yeah, and okay. two things pop out strongly for me. The first is to really find out what bothered the other person? Like, what did the event mean to the other person? Mm. What are the underlying 
qualities in the other person that were, were triggered or stirred up. And really try to understand and make sure you understand really what was going on here rather than jumping to conclusions. So mm. giving the other person that kind of deep listening and giving yourself the benefit of a lot of information about mm. them and what's really mm -hmm. going on here. Second, to the maximum reasonable extent possible, and you decide what's reasonable, deliver the goods. Cop to your part, admit your own fault, whatever it is, if it's anything. In particular, zero in on what to do from now on. That's mm, the maximum mm -hmm. that you can deliver related to whatever that other person got mad because they felt let down in some way. They weren't getting what they wanted in some way. They felt mistreated in some way. They felt like there was a breach of trust in some way. Something happened that involved you. And to the extent that something actually really did happen that involved you, even unwittingly, it wasn't your deliberate intent. There was no evilness in you that was about it, but ba-boom, it landed on that other person. What's the correction you can put in and make an agreement about, in effect, going forward? And mm, give mm -hmm. the person the maximum authentic delivery of those commitments you can early on. That will save a lot of trouble. It maximizes the likelihood that they will be able to do the same for you when it's you who's bothered. And if you're going to give it to them anyway, why not give it to them up front? Yeah. Not as some slick manipulation to get them to shut up, but as something in a really heartfelt way that maybe is summarized yeah. kind of like this. Wow. I'm sorry, I didn't quite realize what was happening there. I'm not trying to deny my my impact on you. I can really get it. And oh, I really, I'm sad that I landed on you like that, period. And I apologize for it, really. And going forward, I can tell you that from now on, I'm going to ABC. I'm gonna steer clear of that kind of languaging around you, or I'm gonna be much more careful to be on time when we make a date with each other, I'm going to take our time agreements very seriously. I'm going to listen more deeply when you start talking rather than have my eyes bouncing all over the room. I'm not going to be checking out and looking at other attractive people while we're on a date with each other, sitting here at the bar. Sorry, got it. I'm going to listen more carefully when you start going off on, you know, Politics these days, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, whatever. I'm going to deliver those goods. Why not deliver the goods up front if you're going to anyway? Yeah, great. We could spend so much time talking about this, and we have spent a lot of time talking about this on previous episodes of the podcast. We've got a lot of content related to these kinds of communication skills. We're coming to the end of this episode here. And I want to talk about a kind of case study, maybe for lack of a better way of putting it. Mm. We get emails with some regularity that go something like this. And I can imagine somebody listening right now who's kind of thinking something like this. And I would just love your take on it. Yeah. And it's something like, hey, you guys are spending a lot of time talking about these ideal qualities to look for in another person or these things to stay away from. And, you know, I get it. I, I want to build myself up in these various ways. I want to grow these psychological skills. I want to manage conflict well. Okay, yeah, of course. 
But, you know, I'm 58 years old and I've either never found the person that I really feel like is the one for me, or maybe I did once, I've been divorced or I had some kind of messy breakup. And man, I'm just looking for anyone. I just want to find somebody Hmm. who thinks that I'm valuable. And I'm having a really hard time doing that. And now I'm just not really in a situation where there are a lot of those qualified prospects running around that you're talking about. Man, like, what can I do? How can I feel about this? And I'm just wondering if you have anything to kind of say to that person. Oh, I've I've talked with this person Mm. many times, and I really respect the truth, the reality of the situation you're describing there. Some things I think are, are helpful. First is to find a way to have a life worth living even while, fill in the blank, Mm. even while grappling with a disability, even while not having a life partner, even while being forced through circumstances to have really tough economic conditions and a crummy job you're stuck in because that's how you get your health insurance for your disabled son. You know, how can you have a life that's a good enough life for you that has meaning and value and fulfillment and even a process of gradual awakening, no matter what your circumstances are. So part one. Part two, can we have part of the pie in our relationships with other people? Mm. Maybe we can have a friendship with someone that we really enjoy in terms of shared interest and there's just no mutual physical attraction. That one's a non-starter. Maybe because you tried it once and you realized it was a non-starter. So, but there you are. They're still a good friend. It's part of the pie. It's not the whole pie. And I've known people who are just so attached to the whole pie that anything Mm. short of the whole pie means no pie at all. Mm. So be willing to have that. Third, sometimes it just happens that we realize that in terms of my pie metaphor, this is someone who... We would never really want to live with, but to hang out with them, maybe erotically once a month, to go on a little trip with once a year, that's better than nothing. And that's really Mm -hmm. pretty good. Mm -hmm. And you're good to go with that. So I think sometimes there can be a place for that. And the last thing I'll just say, kind of related to my fairly blunt and maybe somewhat at odds with the touchy-feely dimension, you know, of my personality and, and our show here, being realistic about demographics and not so personal about it can sometimes be really helpful. And I'll say something potentially controversial here. Uh, when I think about many people in their 50s that I've known who are interested in finding a life partner for whatever reason, mm-hmm. they're in their 50s and they're heterosexual, let's say, my personal experience, there are many more women in that demographic who are interested in relationship and emotionally intelligent about it than there are men in that demographic. So there's a big asymmetry there in terms of the number of buyers and the number of sellers. That's just reality. And a takeaway from that is not to despair but to realize that some of the struggles you're having are a lot just baked into all kinds of global factors. The other thing is to realize that if you're really intending to find a person, the dimension of 
finding and mating, uh, dating and mating that is about marketing broadly stated is really, really important here. Because if you need to find someone while there being many, many other, let's say women who are also competing for that single, attractive, appropriate, let's say heterosexual male individual, you know, your marketing plan needs to really be well-developed. And that's just realistic. Yeah. Yeah, I have enormous empathy and sympathy and, you know, appreciation for somebody who's in that position, which I think many, many, many people are in that position. I wish that I had better advice for them because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm a 34-year-old guy. I, I don't have a lot of shared experience to draw from here. That could give me kind of something pithy or valuable to say having to do with that particular challenge. I would just like to express that it's an incredibly real thing and it is a real problem that people are dealing with. And I do think that as you're saying, Dad, there is a reality where as the pool of eligible partners begins to shrink for whatever reason, often having to do with aging, but not always having to do with aging. I'm thinking um, for our many, many listeners who are in not like cisgendered, not heteronormative relationships, which is the example that we've kind of taken throughout these episodes, there are real challenges with um, the population size that sometimes emerge. That's right. that's real and it brings some of those some of those issues having to do as you were saying particularly with marketing but just a lot of the issues that we've talked about throughout this conversation unfortunately the amount of individual skillfulness you need in those small population situations only goes up yeah it is relatively speaking so much easier for a white cisgender heterosexual guy in their early 20s to find a life partner than it is for somebody who does not check all of those boxes. Mm -hmm. So the degree of difficulty increases as those variables change. And I only say all of that for starters. I mean, I'm not intending to just like say a lot of stuff that people already know, but just to establish a basis of empathy Mm -hmm. for people who are going through that experience. Yeah, that's really true. And it's a good time to underscore something you said as well, which is that mm-hmm. obviously we've been talking about a kind of relationship. Yeah. And there are many other kinds of relationships that you and I don't have much direct experience with. For sure. Um, also, I'm planning a future episode focused on these topics related to dating and finding a, a long-term life partner that hopefully will also com- accomplish that. It's with a female guest. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll be able to bring in a different kind of perspective and somebody yeah. who really spends all of their time uh, devoted to these kinds of topics. Great. All right. So that's it for today's episode where this was the second of two episodes that we spent talking about the dating aspect of relationships, particularly focused on how you can find a long-term partner. We talked today about green flags and red flags, managing those early moments of conflict, dealing with rejection, and ended with that kind of tender note uh, focused on people who are having a tough time finding that person. We started today's episode by talking about some of the green and red flags that can appear inside of our relationships, and particularly what we can look for in a partner. 
Of course, we all probably want to be with somebody who is intelligent and nice and funny and so on, but we were trying to identify things that maybe run a little bit deeper than that. Rick started by naming two key things. The first one, that they be relatively emotionally sane, that they not have a huge anger management issue, that they not be so preoccupied with their past that it incapacitates them in the present. However you want to define that, that they be pretty much a psychologically functional person. And then second, that they have the ability to repair with you. Breaks of rapport are inevitable in our relationships. There's no such thing as a conflict-free relationship. So it becomes incredibly important to be able to repair those conflicts when they naturally emerge. I followed that up by talking about the kind heart. Maybe more so than anything else that I would look for in a prospective partner is somebody who is basically a nice person. And this runs counter to a lot of the cultural narratives that we tend to internalize. Prickly people can be very attractive. We talked for a little while about the James Bond archetype of this sexist, womanizing, horrible, murdering assassin who we've constructed as the kind of most sexy man alive over the last several decades of pop culture. And there are, of course, the female version of these bad boy archetypes. And while it can be tempting for a variety of different reasons to fall into this kind of, ooh, I'll be the person to fix them relationship with that problematic person, long-term, these people are not great romantic partners. We then talked for a while about identifying a person's growth curve and finding somebody who has a upward trajectory in life. Do they have a growth mindset? Are they interested in learning? Are they changing or are they stagnant? Generally, it can be healthy to enter a relationship with the assumption that a person just is the way that they are. That can help us avoid these problematic patterns around trying to fix somebody else or put upon them a version of them that we would like them to be that maybe they don't like to be so much. But it can also be helpful and realistic to think of the other person as a process rather than as a stagnant individual. And part of the question that you're asking yourself is, do I like this process that I'm attaching myself to? We also highlighted general functionality. Is this somebody that you would trust, for instance, to make an important medical decision for you? And alongside that, what I kind of call the friend factor. The reality is that most of the time that's spent in our romantic relationships ends up being not particularly romantic. You're watching a movie with the other person. You're stuck in a car together on a long road trip, whatever it might be. And it's very important that those interactions be basically pleasant enough. I've had a lot of friends and known just a lot of people generally who end up in a relationship with somebody that maybe they really love, but they don't actually like them that much. And that dynamic can often be a very challenging one inside of our long-term relationships. Then a natural part of dating is rejection. Most people are going to have an experience at some point where another person says to them, you know what, you're great and all, but it's just not for me. And we talked a little while about what we can do about that. Rick, in classic Rick fashion, went to learning. What can we learn from this experience to make things go better in the future? Which is itself a kind of claiming our agency, which is a favorite forest topic. So we really did lean into our tropiest version of ourselves on this podcast during that conversation. I then talked for a little while about connecting with the aspects of yourself 
that truly are worthy. The things you know that you're good at, the things that help you feel capable and desirable out in the world. And even if that's hard for you to find, I know that you have those aspects. And I really believe in you. I believe that you can identify those aspects inside of yourself and give yourself full credit for your own worthiness. Then we talked for a little while about managing early conflict. And Rick had a couple of great points. One of the first things that I really want to highlight is how that first moment of conflict with somebody else is going to be very, very salient to them. It stands out and it's going to kind of set a precedent for how your future interactions with them go. Then I mentioned how important it is to stay away from ad hominem styles of attack and avoid going from what someone did to what that thing says about who they are. The kind of silly example that I gave is you didn't do the dishes, so that means that you are a lazy person. That is a death knell inside most of our relationships. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe through the platform of your choice, maybe leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. Also, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and receive bonuses like transcripts of all of our episodes, ad-free versions of what we create, and expanded show notes where I go into the research behind all of the episodes. That's it for today. Until next time, thanks for listening.